Good morning, everybody. So, uh, how many people were expecting to uh, to talk a lot about church leadership today? Good. Uh, we're going to move on. Um, I guess I will say just a couple things. Um, across the landscape of those in the uh, there's Christianity, there's Protestant Christianity it's what we would call probably you know the evangelical umbrella of Christianity um, and you can make that umbrella as small as you want or as big as you want um, there are some common things that everybody ought to agree about and I think we know what those are and, and um, one person I heard said that there are things doctrines and so forth that you ought to really hold on and never let go who Jesus is whose God is the Holy Spirit the Trinity Jesus died for our sins he took our sin upon himself those things you hold on tight and then there are some things you can probably hold on a little bit loosely you may have good reasons for believing them you may have some scriptural support but there's probably some perspective differences some things some people might emphasize more than others and how churches are organized is probably one of those things that we ought, probably ought to hold on to a little bit loosely. Um, we have, you know, friends uh, that go to churches where uh, their organization is different from ours. Uh, they love Jesus as, as we do. And uh, uh, very often how a church gets organized uh, um, has to do a lot with what's happening at the moment. And there are probably you could probably make the argument that there may be some types of organization that are good at different stages of a church's life and that uh, would be interesting but um, uh, I think in general if you if you try to stick to the leadership organization um, that we do have in in scripture you'll be in in good shape and I think Covenant's trying to do justice to that and um, we can talk more about it as, as you wish. But we're going to move on and talk about Stephen today. Just to organize our thinking, uh, we're going to be introduced. Uh, I guess we, we were introduced a little bit to Stephen last week. We're going to talk about him a little bit more today. We're going to hear from him, and then we're going to hear um, Stephen's uh, parting words to us. If we go back to the first part of chapter 6 that we looked at and we found that there were uh, seven people, seven men who were picked out and remember even though we talked about deacons last time, these are not deacons, right? Um, they're, the King James may have led us astray a little bit. Uh, these were seven men who needed to help out with some logistics, uh, distributing food and so forth and one of those seven, um, the first one picked in verse 5 it says well, I don't know if it was the first one picked, the first one listed. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So Luke, as we've seen, kind of introduces us to people, and then he talks more about them. And as he's telling the story, uh, we get to meet Stephen as one of these men who was picked to help out, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And what we'll find, like many Baptists, if you volunteer for something, next thing you know you're doing a whole lot more 
And uh, in verse 8, which is where we'll start today, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So when you agree with God that you'll help out, and when people lay their hands on you and pray for you, you never know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with you after that. And sure enough, uh, in verse 8, we find that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, some people just don't know how to enjoy a good thing. And in verse 9, we find some people are getting uncomfortable with this. And it says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place, or this place, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him and all who sat in the council... <coughs> saw that his face was like the face of an angel and the high priest said are these things so so here we have the story of a man who is doing good things for God rubbed some people the wrong way to put it mildly has false testimony spread against him and is brought before the council does this sound familiar? Why does this sound familiar? They did it to Peter and John recently, right? And they did it to Jesus, right? So in a fairly short order, we have three big councils because why? Why do we have these? We've talked about this. Who was in power? The Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, the temple elite, the high priests, and the it's kind of like the family business. We talked about that a little bit. People in power saw somebody else doing stuff and most likely they felt threatened they didn't like the way this was going and they wanted to put it down they were not to have it they were not to have it verse 1 of chapter 7 it says and the high priest so high priest is in charge the high priest said are these things so are these things so? And then we hear what Stephen said. We're going to look at this, and I don't know, I guess maybe I'll skip around a little bit, but you really need to hear the whole thing, and you know, maybe we could, I, we'll probably just wind up reading it. But Stephen might have said, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? If I ask any of you and say, who do you think you are? That really gets at a question of your identity. Where do you fit in the scheme of things? Why do you think you have the authority to say this or that? Or who do you think you are? Because as we go through this, Stephen starts to hit on some of the core things that made them think they were all that, to use the common vernacular. And he's undercutting. He's undercutting. He's undercutting because who they thought they were wasn't really who they were. Now, like any good debater, just because they ask the question doesn't mean you have to answer it. Okay. The high priest said, are these things so? That is, have you been saying that you're going to destroy the temple and break down what Moses said? So Stephen said, verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land which I will show you. He takes it all the way back and puts the focus on God. Just a quick fact. If you're ever in that position where you don't know what to say, if you go all the, back, all the way back and start with God, that's a good strategy. <coughs> It's a good strategy. He talks about the God of glory. He talks about Abraham. He's really settling in to what should have been pretty familiar territory for them. Now, Stephen was a bit of an outsider. He was not a Jew's Jew, so to speak. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Greek Jew. Okay? Um, he probably had a different accent. So now, not only do you have this person who's been doing stuff out of the mainstream, now you've got someone who isn't really like us, and he's going to come and lecture us about Abraham, you can see them starting to get defensive already. He goes on and he talks about um, God's promise in verse 5. He promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring even though he had no child. Verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of the circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and of the 12 patriarchs. If you read all those verses, you'll see God came. God came. God took the initiative as he always does. God promised. God gave. Focus on God. He narrows it a little bit. Verse 9. It says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, we know the story, right? We know the story. Sold into Egypt by his brothers. 
he was made ruler he was there to bring not just his own household but the house all of Egypt really through the the famine verse 14 Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred 75 persons in all and Jacob went down to Egypt and he died and he our fathers was carried back and so forth Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. What's he moving to now? He's moving to the time of the Exodus. This is the time of Moses, right? You guys know your history? He just covered how many years? Just from the start of Egypt to the end of the Exodus was over 400, 430-ish years. He covered a lot of ground there. By the way, if you think about this, if you had to stand up and somebody said, give me a quick history of America, I'm not sure where you would start, but you'd probably talk about the early colonists, right, and you know, you'd probably talk about the War of Independence and maybe the Civil War and so forth. You'd have to go back to 1770 somewhere or a little before probably. Maybe go back to the 1600s, Plymouth Rock, right? So you could go back a ways. Stephen was going back about 1500 years, all right? But he's hitting the high spots. Where are Moses? Remember, one of the charges was you're going against Moses. And he goes through and he talks about Moses. Verse 29, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. We know why Moses fled, right? He killed a guy. He had to run. Verse 30, 40 years had passed, and now we hear about the burning bush. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He drew near to look at it. We hear God say, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and so forth. Verse 34, I've seen the affliction of my people in our Egypt. I've heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. Catch this, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected. Now, early on, when he was still Pharaoh's son and still looking at the people, Stephen's making the point, even back then, Moses tried to help his people. But they said, basically, and I glossed over it, who are you? to judge and rule over us. They rejected him. So Moses went away for 40 years. Ultimately, God calls him and says, you're going to be my redeemer. So just like we have Joseph, who saved his family from famine, in essence, he was their redeemer. Stephen is hinting that Jesus is a better Joseph. 
Joseph was rejected by his brothers, but became their redeemer. Now we hear Stephen say, without even using the Lord's name, Jesus is a better Moses. Moses was rejected by his people. God called him, said, I'm going to use you to be my deliverer. He's taking them all the way back every time. He's, he's, he's saying, you know, you guys are focusing on, you know, the temple, and we'll get to that, and the Moses. But he's taking them deeper and say, you know, this is not about, this is not about the characters in the play. This is about the author of the play. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and said, he received living oracles to give to us. So number one, they're saying, even Moses said, it's not about me. It's about someone better than me, someone to come after me, right? So they're wanting, in part, to make this all about Moses. And he's saying, you know, even Moses said it wasn't about me or wasn't all about me. He makes the point, if they're all so excited about Moses and obeying Moses, well, that's kind of rich because Israel's history is full of people who rejected Moses. They did worse stuff than what they're accusing him of, and here they are so high and mighty. And he goes on in 39 to make this point. He said, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So he's saying, you claim to be in the lineage of Moses, you high priests. And Aaron, of course, we know was of the tribe of Levi, right? And within that tribe, only the descendants of Aaron could be the high priest. We talked about this. So now he's kind of hitting close to home. He's talking about their granddaddy, granddaddy, granddaddy. And saying Aaron is basically the one who led this whole calf rebellion. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. What they're talking about here, the tabernacle, right? So now we're shifting. He's talked about Moses. Remember, he was brought up on two charges. You're going against the temple. You're going against Moses. He kind of sidesteps the temple a little bit and talks about 
the pre-temple, which was a tabernacle. He says, latter part of verse 45, so it was until the days of David. In other words, a tabernacle was there for a very long time. Verse 46, David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As a prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This phrase in verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, was kind of a, kind of a cut. That's what, that was the terminology used for idols. You remember when we, when we went through Isaiah and we talked about the log and they said, you know, half of it you carve into an idol and the other half you burn in sacrifice to the idol. How silly is that? You remember that? That end of the log that became the idol was made by hand. We think handmade nowadays is probably a good thing, but in that day, this made by hands was kind of an insult, saying, you know, God doesn't, can't really abide in places made by hands. He says, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Well, now he's really hitting them, right? He's talked about their granddaddy. He's talked about Moses. He's talked about the tabernacle slash temple. He is really taking all these accusations that were thrown toward him and holding up a big mirror, right? And then he brings it home, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. To people who wanted to brag about, and in our culture this seems like an odd thing to brag about, but the Jews bragged about the circumcision. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Remember, he just got through saying Abraham received the covenant of the circumcision. That circumcision was a sign of God's connection with them and of God's blessing on them and God's promise to them as a people. It says, you uncircumcised people. You are not acting like you belong in this family tree. And not only that, it's, well, go on. It says, you're uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This might have sounded strange to them. I'm not sure they knew the Holy Spirit at this point. But he's calling it out. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's talked about their ancestry. He's talked about Moses. He's talked about the temple. The other big thing, if you ask a Jew, who do you think they are? We got the law. We got the law. And he said, and he says, you got the law and you don't keep it. All those things that they used to claim their status, he's knocked them down. <coughs> they literally had had it at this point. And when you're presented with that sort of thing, <coughs> You either repent or you bow up and fight. And that's what they did. Full on rebellion against everything that they had been presented with. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever been so mad you just ground your teeth? And he was looking at him. He says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. And they cast them out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. So this is the second time, in essence, that the council has committed capital murder against someone that they didn't agree with. But you can see how it's elevated because this is the first time they just did it themselves. They didn't get the help of the Romans. They didn't. They just did it. This was a mob. This was a mob. You've heard the saying, politics is always, what, local. Sin is always local, right? It's always right where we are. 
in this whole course of history, now it was on them. Now it was on them. Let's step back and look at just a couple things here. First of all, any any questions or comments on, you know, this was amazing rhetoric. Yes, John. You said politics are always flat. That word local. They say local. They say politics is always local, right? In other words, the issues that really get people going, it's the local school board, right? It's the gambling laws, it's whatever, right? That's what gets people going. Well, you can't, you can't be, this is, I'm not talking about scripture, this is just my opinion, but I don't think you can really continue with a hard heart in the midst of, let me rephrase that, you can't go on sinning in the midst of this religious atmosphere without a pretty hard heart right and it amazes us still today right the Vatican Guard just interrupted an orgy in the Vatican true story the person who was the previous Pope's first secretary was just indicted because he took 500, almost 500,000 euros of money that had been devoted to a children's hospital and he used it to renovate his apartment. Right? This is not this is not just old stuff. You got to be pretty, pretty hard-hearted you know, I'm not saying all Catholics are Christians, don't get me wrong. You could, you could be Christian in spite of being Catholic. It's just hard. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff you've got to wade through. A lot of grace there, I'm sure. But you see what I mean. And to make the point, religion that is far away from God hurts you. It doesn't help you. So we don't really don't aspire to be religious. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were not to have it. A couple things to think about. We'll wrap up. God works. If you think about that story he just told, God worked through their geography, no matter where they were. God worked through the nation whether they were obedient or disobedient. God works his plan over time. And he works his plan for his glory and ultimately for our benefit. You could, you could list 
and I've highlighted some of the negative things in the history of Israel. There were some positive things there as well. Homework is to think, if you had to tell your life story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, how would you tell it? And how would you tell it in such a way that God gets the glory? So when you think, or somebody says, who do you think you are? Remember, first strategy, start with God, right? How would you tell your story? I always learn something. Here's what I learned. One of the things I learned this week. Do you know what the true definition of a martyr is? We think of Stephen as being a martyr. It means witness. It means witness. There's evidence. There's evidence. So, you think, who do you think you are? Where's your identity? How would you tell the story? Quick comments? Let's close. Father, we thank you for this whole arc of history, and we are so grateful that this arc of history includes us now, that we have the true circumcision, that we are part of the true Israel, that we are grafted in because of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.